Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hummus Tailgate Party. I'm your host, Thomas Jackson. In today's episode, we're going to be recapping what happened in week three of college football and looking ahead to week four. So sit back, enjoy, and thanks for listening. Thomas Jackson, beautiful podcast from Denver. So it was a Saturday, kind of odd, lots of upsets almost happened, but not too many actually went all the way through. So we'll start off with the Bama and Auburn games and then hit a lot of the other outcomes a little bit quicker. Um, so Bama defeated Florida in the Swamp 31-29. to This was a really weird game. A lot of times you'll see Alabama jump out to a big lead in a game like this and just never look back and pretty much just take any hope away from the team. Alabama got out to a 21-3 lead. Early in the first half, It Bama scored on the three uh, first possessions of theirs were all touchdowns. It was looking just like another one of those kind of classic Saban beatdowns. And Florida deserves a lot of credit for not giving up right then and there because it could have gotten really ugly. It looked like it was already getting really ugly um, really fast. Alabama's offense basically stalled after this 21-3 lead. They only scored 10 points for the rest of the game. And that they got their third touchdown at the 48-second at mark in the first quarter. So before 15 minutes were up, Alabama already had 21 points. And then in the remaining 45 minutes of game time, Alabama only scored 10 points. So this was largely in part because Bama just really couldn't run the ball like we usually can. Brian Robinson got kind of nicked up early in the game, and he was in and out for the rest of the game. He was able to play after his injury, but the running game just never really picked up. Alabama only had 91 rushing yards, which was surprising for me to see, even though they never really got the ball moving um, on the ground too consistently. I thought they had a little bit more than that. Something that would have definitely helped that we've been spoiled with as Bama fans in the past is a quarterback who's not afraid to run the ball. That did not appear to be the case um, with Bryce Young on Saturday as there were a lot of plays where it looked like he had a lot of open grass and he just had no interest in tucking the ball and getting some yards on the ground himself. So that was pretty frustrating. Um, I know most Bama fans felt like he should have just taken, take, you know, dropped his head down and gotten a few yards wherever he could. It's not like as a quarterback, you even have to take a big hit. You can slide or run out of bounds, and the refs are very protective of quarterbacks in situations like that anyway. So you can even get a flag when it's not too bad of a play. Um, so that'll be something to watch with Bryce going forward. He had a pretty good game in the air. He only had one... Well, he didn't have any turnovers. He had one that absolutely should have been a turnover, hit the Florida linebacker right in the numbers, and he just dropped it, thankfully, for Bama. But, um, yeah, Bryce seems like he needs to get a little more confident, a little tougher on the ground, and maybe that's just a product of being used to the quarterbacks at Bama the past few years. But there were plenty of plays where he could have tucked it down and run and helped out the team when he chose not to. So I'll be keeping my eye on that as we go forward, especially in a couple of these big SEC games coming up for Bama. um, To look at Florida a little bit more, they really excelled on the ground. That was their strength for the day, um, other than obviously their defense and quarters two through four but Florida averaged over six yards per carry they really had their way with Bama the whole time Florida looked really good on both sides of the ball um and down in the trenches and this game just really um it was it was really scary because early in the game I think it was on Florida's first touchdown um, when I guess they made it 21 to 10, I believe, or well, they were trying to make it 21 to 10 and it was 21 to nine instead because they missed the PAT early in the game. That's one of those at that point, it still wasn't too much of a ball game. 
Um, so didn't think much of it at the time. However, Florida charged all the way back, scored in the fourth quarter to make the game 31 to 29. And had they made that first PAT, all they would have had to do is kick another PAT to tie the ball game. And I know I'm not alone in thinking that I wanted no part of overtime in the swamp. Momentum was totally on their side. Everyone down there said the place was just absolutely coming unglued. And I do not think Bama would have won that game had it gone to overtime. Thankfully, Florida, they had been having their way, especially on the ground, like I said, all game, or really, I guess, after the second quarter. And they just ran a very discombobulated kind of RPO play where it looked like Emory Jones and the running back could not decide who wanted the ball? Um, Emery held on to it for a long time, and it turned into this really awkward situation where he was almost kind of like saddling the guy's butt, going behind him into the line, and Bama was able to swallow him up. So that left Florida just short at 29 points, which is where the game ended. Of course, right after that is when all the weird clock malfunctions went on which I won't really get into but that was added a lot of stress to an already stressful situation so overall um, I thought it showed a lot of guts out of Florida to battle back from that 21 to 3 deficit because usually when Bama gets to that point especially that early in the game then it turns it just ends up being a total bloodbath and is not um, not very fun for anyone besides Bama fans to watch I thought it was going to be one of those afternoons, and it turned into being a very stressful one. Um, I mean, I'm proud of Alabama for getting it done. It was a super hostile environment, very hot down there. We have just a lot of young guys, especially on the offensive side of the ball, who've never, or really all the freshmen and sophomores, if you think about it, nobody has played in an environment like that before. And that goes for the Florida guys, too, whether you're home or away. That's the first real intense hostile environment that all the players have been in, which, you know, there's so half of Alabama team, essentially the freshmen and sophomores have never seen a crowd like that. So hopefully they can put all of this in their back pocket, grow from it going forward um, and, you know, have it a have it a lesson learned to keep your foot on the gas, don't let up, but also just the kind of intangible and valuable experience of playing at a place like the Swamp when it's really rocking. So Bama goes to A&M in three weeks. We'll get into them later uh, with their game against Arkansas coming up this weekend, but that's going to be a similarly just insane environment. So maybe Bama, the young guys, will be able to... um, use some of what they learned on Saturday and apply it places like that and Jordan Hare, other places that are going to be as intense as they come going down the road. Speaking of intense environments, obviously Penn State with the big whiteout is hyped up all week and really all off season for this Penn State Auburn game. Penn State stopped Penn State topped the Tigers 28 to 20 in a pretty uh, wild and fun game. Uh, as everyone was pretty much expecting. So I didn't really see much of the <clears throat> much of the first half of this game because I was still decompressing from my game. <laughs> um, but there were really two plays that me and all my buddies were talking about after this one was over. That was the first play of the second half when Auburn ran the trick play. Uh, it was a screen pass that was supposed to go downfield for a big long shot. Auburn got the ball first coming out of halftime, so they were trying to catch Penn State sleeping and get a p- big trick play right out of the gate. However, nothing was open downfield. Kobe Hudson was the wide receiver for Auburn trying to throw the ball deep. He didn't have anybody there that he liked open, so he tried to just run with the ball and get something out of nothing. He was just kind of gripping the ball like you see some of the people do that aren't used to having the ball in their hands too often, and it it was just an unforced fumble. He hit it on his thigh, and it bounced off of him. Penn State recovered it, 
drove down and got some points. So immediately Auburn was kind of in the hole after that, and that got the crowd back into it super quick. Of course, Auburn uh, was still in the game the whole second half. Bo let them down at the very end of the fourth quarter for what turned out to be the most talked about play of the game. People are still griping over it, and that was, of course, the fourth and goal fade pass. Uh, (laughs) You know, everything is easy to say, oh, it was a genius play when it works, or it was a stupid play when it doesn't work, when it's already happened and you're just looking back on it recording from your basement. However, like, you know, we all know that the the fade is not a high percentage play, especially when it is a fourth down situation, because if either the wide receiver gets jammed up or it's a bad pass, that's just it, the play is over. There's no way of there's no plan B in a situation like that. Uh, Bo launched the ball out of bounds. It did not look like a good pass at all. The wide receiver on that side looked like he was halfway just trying to get a call instead of really fighting for the ball. There was no flag on the play, of course. Um, and I know everybody was pretty upset because Auburn had been running the ball decently well. Um, you know, Bo himself can run the ball really pretty well. And I think even though Auburn was on the right hash and Bo's right-handed, so a play like a rollout where he has some guys cutting across the end zone and the option to run it himself. That's not really ideal when you're on the short side of the field like that and you don't want to run to the opposite side of your hand so you're not having to twist across your body real awkwardly. Um, Seems like the consensus among Auburn fans and basically everybody was just do some type of, you know, RPO, either give it to Bigsby, one of the best running backs in the league and really country, Um, and just trust your best player or, you know, just get Bo out into some space and at least give him the option of maybe there's going to be a guy open. If not, then he can at least try to do something with his feet. They opted for none of that through the fade route. It wasn't even close. So I know that was a pretty disappointing ending to that whole ball game. There was also some pretty bad officiating in that, uh, because there was a, play on the goal line where an Auburn linebacker got ejected for targeting, which was a pretty weak call. Um, This, of course, every time there's a questionable targeting call, it kind of strikes up debate and um, it just, there was, there was nothing else the guy could have done. It was not a malicious play. It was the only way he could have stopped. And he really, you know, he was clearly not leading solely with his head. He got him with the shoulder too, but I understand there's, you know, player safety is the most important thing. However, it feels like there's got to be some type of a type one and type two targeting where if what happened on Saturday night is going to be called, maybe give him 15 yards and a first down, but kicking the guy out for the rest of the game. And especially just in a high leverage, super emotional game on the line spot like that is just it's just really intense and you know it's it's pretty clear most of the time when someone's just being completely malicious and careless going at someone else's head versus when it's just a football play and stuff like that is impossible to completely get out of the game so you know in a perfect world that would be nice maybe one day but that was kind of disappointing to see that kid get thrown out of the game for just you know, trying to do his best to keep the guy out of the end zone. Uh, Earlier in the game, and this was in the first half, I believe, when I hadn't quite tuned in yet, but the referees (laughs) who get paid God knows how much to do this primetime game that the whole country's watching uh, screwed Penn State completely out of an entire down. It was third down, but the little marker that the referees hold on the sideline with the down on it, they messed it up, and it said fourth down, so Penn State punted on what was actually a third down. James Franklin, understandably, really, really laid into them after this, 
because even though, especially with Penn State losing or ending up winning the game, it's way less of a story than it would have been. But if they had lost this game, then you truly just never know how a single play could, you know, change the drive, get three or seven points here or there, and then change the rest of the course of the game. So I think the referees got bailed out by Penn State winning, but that was just a pretty just blatantly stupid mistake on their part to take a, you know, a lot of these calls we like to argue about and complain about after the fact are pretty sometimes subjective, such as the the targeting that we were just discussing, but this was just pure stupidity, and I can only imagine if that happened into an Alabama game. I think Saban would actually choke out a referee if it happened like that, and they were trying to apologize to him after the fact. But, um, yeah, it feels like only Auburn would be on the benefiting end of that, but I digress. So we go on to some of the other games around the country from the past week. Uh, Like I said, there were a lot of really weird close games with some very nationally relevant playoff contender types of teams. Uh, Oklahoma played Nebraska. Oklahoma was a 22-point favorite. This was the 50th anniversary of the game of the century back from 1971 when these two teams played. Everybody, myself included, thought, okay, OU's looked a little shaky the first couple weeks, but this should be their get-right game. They should just completely steamroll Nebraska because we have covered them and how bad they've looked extensively on this podcast. And credit where credit's due shout out to nebraska and scott frost because they only lost by a touchdown i didn't really see any of this game but it is unbelievable that ou was only able to put up 23 points all i've heard about all offseason is how great they are spencer rattler number one draft pick blah 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 uh it's definitely not looking like that anymore their defense i guess hold their held their own only giving up 16, which thankfully that's it because one more touchdown and, you know, the, we could be having a t- leading off the podcast with Oklahoma and Nebraska. Uh, Clemson only beat Georgia Tech 14-8. to There was a long, uh, I think like three or four hour thunderstorm delay in this one. So that does make things weird when you have to get all warmed up and sit around for three hours and get back up to play a game of football. I get that that is a difficult circumstance. However, it's freaking Georgia Tech and they are awful. Their win total this year was set at like three and a half, if I'm not mistaking. Um, so Clemson was outgained, continuing with their offensive struggles they've had since week one against Georgia. Georgia Tech actually outgained Clemson 298 yards to 284. DJ only had 126 passing yards, which is just really hard to fathom given where Clemson is as a program versus where Georgia Tech is. Um, You know, I'm sure it was wet out there and whatnot, but good God, Clemson only beating them by six points. They travel to NC State next week. They have got to be really concerned. Ohio State beat uh, Tulsa 41 to 20. This game was closer than the score indicates. We were flipping this one on and off during the beginning of the Bama game because it was actually a ball game in the fourth quarter. Uh, there were times when Tulsa was only trailing by a touchdown. Ohio State eventually pulled away like they tend to do. We haven't really seen that so much this year. But that's kind of their thing in the past. If they do struggle for you know the first half, and they can just throw some bombs and pull way ahead of a team, and it doesn't feel like it was much of a game at the end of it. But Ohio State defense still giving up 20 points to a Tulsa team who is way less talented to them, although their offense was able to pull through late for them. Kentucky may be celebrating a little bit too much after their big win against Missouri last weekend. They only beat Chattanooga 28-23. to um, That's pretty much it for the close games that were not technically upsets. Now we'll move on to the ones where the underdog actually pulled it off. So as weird as the Auburn... Penn State game was this Memphis versus Mississippi State game uh, actually got a lot weirder, (laughs) believe it or not. So Memphis knocked off State 31 to 29 in the Liberty Bowl. And this has one of the worst refereeing mishaps, blunders that I've probably ever seen. 
uh, because it completely changed the outcome of the game and it's hard to fathom how this even went down in real time. But with a few minutes left in the game, State was punting to Memphis. The, it was a nice punt. The ball was rolling towards the end zone. There were a few State defenders down there by it. And one of the guys, he to save the ball from going to the end zone and being a touchback, he knocked the ball back with his hand. Another State defender taps the ball down around the seven-yard line, give or take. The referee, who is back kind of in the end zone, throws the marker down to indicate that Mississippi State touched the ball and started waving his hands above his head to indicate that the play was dead. While this is happening, the Memphis punt returner comes in and scoops the ball up in the middle of a bunch of state defenders who just assumed correctly but incorrectly that the play was over. And this guy took it 90-plus yards to the house for a touchdown. It was then called a touchdown on the field. Um... The referee was waving his hands because the play was dead. Because by rule, when the punting team touches the ball, it is a dead ball. However, they still credited Memphis with this touchdown. And somehow it was not reviewed. I was not watching this. So I've only seen the highlights of this play. But Memphis was awarded the touchdown after what should have been a dead ball on their own seven-yard line and ended up defeating Mississippi State by a final score of 31-29. to 29. So those seven points they got from that weird punt return actually did make the difference in the game. The SEC came out you know, a few hours later with a statement saying that they messed up. No kidding. Uh, but, you know, of course, at that point, it's too late to do anything about it. And Mississippi State was completely robbed of what should have been a victory, and Memphis somehow got away with one. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen anything quite like this in a any type of football game. Uh, just the absolute miscommunication and cluelessness of these referees is hard to fathom how they made it to the college level of doing this. This is something that you might expect <laughs> in like a, a Pop Warner football game, I guess, uh, but not with a college. And this was, I believe, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, an SEC officiating crew. So I honestly feel bad for all the state fans, anybody that bet on state. I believe they were a three-point favorite in this game, so it swung all of that too. Um, so... Condolences to everybody out there, uh, like my little brother Will, that are Mississippi State fans. He's a big cowbell guy, so I know this one was extra tough on him, especially being in the middle of this stressful Alabama-Florida game. But uh, yeah, that's a tough one for the Bulldogs, but they have a chance this upcoming week to get back on track. Um, you know, they, sh- they should be undefeated going into this LSU game, so that's really too bad. But <laughs> Moving on, BYU upset Arizona State. BYU continues their tear through the Pac-12. They were a four, four-and-a-half point dog at home, and they won by a final score of 27-17. So they look like they are the absolute real deal because they've beaten a couple Pac-12 teams who, at least going into the season, I was super high on in Utah and Arizona State. Uh, Fresno State beat UCLA by a margin of 40-37. to UCLA's had a really weird schedule so far. They played Hawaii in week zero, LSU in week one, and then they were off last week. So maybe they were celebrating the LSU win a little bit too long. That would not be totally uh, unsurprising. But tough one for the Bruins as everyone thought they were, you know, going to make a push for the for the top ten perhaps this year. They could still definitely get there, but never want to see that coming especially coming off of a bye week Michigan State really manhandled Miami 38 to 17 Miami is now a measly one and two which could very easily be 0 and three since they barely squeaked past App State Michigan State seems to have things rolling a little bit more like they used to under Mel Tucker uh, Utah lost to San Diego State 33 to 31 this game went into three overtimes uh, Utah 
lot of news broke about them today. I'm recording this on Tuesday night. So their quarterback, who started the first three games, Charlie Brewer, he transferred from Baylor this past offseason. Um, he was benched during the San Diego State game for Charlie, nope, sorry, Cameron Rising, Utah's sophomore quarterback, who Rising started the first game of 2020 for the Utes and got hurt and was out for the whole season. So after Charlie Brewer started off one and one and then was trailing 24 to 10 to San Diego State, he got benched. Cameron Rising went in and actually led Utah back to tie the game. So they did not end up winning, but Rising seemed to give them a little bit of a spark uh, and forced overtime in this one. Just a little too, too little too late. Charlie Brewer now leaving after week three. Not sure what's going on there. Clearly not great chemistry with the Utah program. Uh, so this will be now he's seeking his third team. Uh, he left at this time because he can maintain a redshirt status uh, since he's only played in three games. And of course, four is the limit for that. So he'll still have a year of eligibility left. Uh, not root- not rooting against the kid, but you know, I hope he finds what he's looking for. Uh, it's a pretty weird situation with Charlie Brewer there. So Utah, we'll talk about them in a little bit, but maybe they can get some of their mojo back, get back up to playing like they were expecting to before the season with Cameron Rising, their guy. Um, so now that's it for the week three recap there. It was just a weird week with a lot of the, a lot of the top teams struggling, you know, Bama looking mortal, Oklahoma, Clemson, Ohio State, all having trouble with far inferior opponents. So I think this is probably a pretty exciting week, even though there weren't a ton of upsets with super high profile teams. It was probably a pretty exciting week for college football fans that don't have a team that's normally in that playoff conversation because everybody looks beatable. It doesn't look like there's really a single elite team this year. Of course, it's only week three, long way to go, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it looks it looks pretty wide open compared to what it's been even at this point in the season over previous years. So a long way to go, but um, yeah, quite a bit of shakeup across the college football playoff landscape um, the past week. So it's going to be interesting going forward, especially as we get closer to conference games week in, week out. Uh, There's a lot of SEC games coming up this week. Alabama and Auburn both have cupcake games, but then the following week, week five, which we have a big episode planned for, really excited for that, uh, is I believe everybody's going to be in SEC play at that point, and probably everyone around the country is going to be getting into their conference schedule week in, week out. So we'll kind of get rid of a lot of these stinker games and have great slates across the board uh, every every week from there on out. This week, not going to lie, it's not the greatest slate of games. Um Nothing I'm super thrilled to watch, but still plenty of interesting interesting matchups. So, uh, first of all, we have Notre Dame playing Wisconsin at Soldier Field. This game is an early 11 a.m. Central kick. Um, this is the game day, game of the week. So, Jack Cohn, the quarterback from... The quarterback for Notre Dame actually transferred from Wisconsin. So there's kind of an interesting dynamic right off the bat between these two teams. He was replaced by Graham Mertz at the beginning of the 2020 season. I believe Cohn got COVID and Mertz came in and played really well the first couple of weeks. And after that, the Badgers didn't look back. Cone decided to transfer to Notre Dame to fill in the void that Ian Book left, and Mertz has not been very good the past, mm, really this season and last half of last season. So it'll be interesting. I'm sure Jack Cone, this is a pretty personal one for him. I don't think there was really any bad blood between 
uh, him and the Badgers. He probably just wanted a better chance to start at a program and, you know, getting the starting gig. Off the bat at Notre Dame is definitely no no slouch. Notre Dame runs a two-quarterback system, so Cohn plays the more game manager role, and their backup will come in for more running dual-threat situations. So this will probably be a pretty low-scoring, kind of classic Big Ten-style slugfest. Wisconsin, I've been pretty disappointed with them the first couple weeks, especially in that Penn State game when they just really laid down a stinker. Mertz totally gave the game to the Nittany Lions, and Notre Dame has been wildly underwhelming. So I think Wisconsin will win this one. They are about a touchdown favorite there at Soldier Field, but it would be nice to see Wisconsin come out and take care of an Irish team that has impressed absolutely nobody this year. At the same time in the morning, 11 a.m., Central LSU travels to Mississippi State. This one I am really excited for because it's going to answer a lot of questions we have about LSU, or at least start to. So they lost to UCLA, of course, week one. Since then, they've just played a couple scrubs, and now they play at State. State, I'm sure, are pretty angry and motivated after they got cheated out of their game against Memphis a couple days ago. Um this is a game where state upset them and shocked the college football world week one of 2020 before we realized that LSU was complete garbage last year. Uh, the, the state quarterback threw for about a thousand yards, exaggerating, but not really on LSU's defense. Of course, that was with Bo Pelini. They do not have him anymore. So I wouldn't expect that type of Mike Leach kind of, you know, Washington State style, just air raid on LSU this year. But LSU has been pushed around in the only decent decent game they've had. So it'll be interesting to see if State can impose their will and uh, steal this one from the Tigers. LSU is a two and a half point favorite in Starkville. Uh, also at 11 a.m., Missouri travels to Boston College. These are both two kind of more under-the-radar teams that I like a lot this year. Boston College lost their veteran quarterback on an injury for the whole season, so they will not be using him. They had their backup playing last week against Temple and had no issues winning that one 28-3. Boston College is 3-0, and but they haven't played anybody yet, so it'll be interesting to see how they hold up against... Uh, Pretty good offense in, in Missouri. The CBS SEC Game of the Week is Texas A&M playing Arkansas at Jerry World. This game is a hell of a lot more interesting than I think anybody expected it to be, um, you know, even a month ago with Arkansas now ranked for the first time since, good God, who knows, and Texas A&M struggling so hard, so badly against a Colorado team that looks awful now, getting waxed thirty to zero by Minnesota last week. Uh, so last week, uh, Texas A&M's backup quarterback Zach Calzada, I think it is, had no problem against New Mexico State or New New Mexico. Sorry, it was probably a much needed, just easy game where it, the game plan was for him to be in the whole time but now they're going to have a tough test with the hogs uh we all saw how physical and you know arkansas was and imposed their will against texas texas a&m is a lot more talented than that texas squad but if the quarterback is having troubles against colorado then i don't imagine this hogs defense is going to be very easy for him that one is, of course, the 2.30 game on CBS. Clemson is playing at NC State at that same time in 2.30. They're a 9.5-point favorite. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if their offense can even score 9.5 points against NC State. Uh, I might not hate the points there, but who knows? Whenever Clemson you know, turns on the switch, we'll all feel like idiots probably. If it happens, we'll see. Uh, NC State, I liked them a lot before the season. They did not look impressive at all at Mississippi State. Granted, that was a pretty hostile environment there in Starkville. Not an easy way to get your season started in week two, but they've been known to give Clemson some problems in the past. Now that we don't have Deshaun Watson or Trevor, you know, controlling the offense, we'll see. So Clemson, keep that one 
if you're watching the Texas A&M and Arkansas game, keep an eye on that Clemson score because if NC State, you know, if they have a successful first half, that could make for a very, very interesting third and fourth quarter against Clemson there. Uh, this is really the first like real team they've played since the Georgia game, so it'll be interesting to see how they hold up. Tennessee is a 20-point underdog at Florida. Don't really have too much to say about the Vols other than maybe they're catching Florida at a good point here. You know, Florida being such a physical, hard-fought, emotional, draining ball game against Bama this past week, that's never a bad place to get someone the week after the game. It's a lot of the reason, like Bama, especially when we have to play at Mississippi State, that game is traditionally the week after LSU. So if we have a really hard-fought, you know, draining game against LSU, then a lot of times Mississippi State will play us way closer than they really should be. But the team, it just takes several days to recover physically and mentally from a game like that. And teams can sneak up on you. Tennessee's offense is capable. Their defense, I mean, is, this will probably be a pretty high-scoring game. I think the over-under is at like 60-61. Might not hate the over there. Um, but you know, maybe Tennessee can put up some points and keep it interesting. I imagine Florida will be able to get enough stops to where it won't really be a problem late in the game. But if there's ever a good place for a 20 point dog to sneak up and make it a close game, this is probably a pretty good one for the Vols. And lastly, Oklahoma hosts West Virginia. Oklahoma is a 16 and a half point favorite, which seems pretty, pretty stout to me. Uh, West Virginia looked good. They held off Virginia Tech last week in Morgantown. So, while I'm not too big on West Virginia this year, I'm definitely not big on Oklahoma now. So, it'll be... It could be an entertaining game uh, at nighttime, but unfortunately that OU, West Virginia, and Tennessee-Florida games are about all we have at night. So I'll be at a baseball game, but (laughs) keeping my eye on the scores of these. All right, so moving on to some segments as we round everything out. Uh, I've decided to slightly restructure the Hot Seat Watch of the Week presented by Lee Corso. Uh, we're going to, instead of doing like a one, two, three, four, five type of ranking, we're going to move it to a tier system. So tier one is the seat is actively hot. So these are the guys who are truly on the hot seat. Tier two is kind of the keep an eye out for these people phase. Like they're doing okay right now, but you know, lose one or two inopportune games and we could see them getting bumped up to tier one, uh, S tier, God tier, Clay Helton. He stands alone (laughs) after his week two firing, of course. Uh, then tier one, the actively hot seat tier. I think I missed this one last week, so my bad, but this is a pretty obvious one, obvious one. Now Florida state head coach, Mike Norvell, Uh, They just lost to the Wake Forest Demon Deacons in week three after losing to Jacksonville State at home, after losing to a crappy overrated Notre Dame team at home. So to put it into context, Florida State's obviously had a pretty weird run ever since that 2017 season when Jimbo dipped out of town. Uh, Willie Taggart was fired after two seasons at Florida State with a 9-12 and record. Mike Norvell would have to finish this season. There's nine games left. He would have to finish with a 6-3 and record to tie Willie Taggart's record when he was let go. So, you know, we've had these a couple weeks ago, the kind of big coaching carousel philosophy discussion uh, about you can't fire a coach every two years and expect anything good to ever happen with all the roster and staff turnover. That's just a recipe for disaster. Uh, However, you know, Florida state's not going to finish this year six and three going forward. I can guarantee you that. So it would be tough for the Knowles to hang on to a coach who say has a seven and 14 record after two years, but what are they going to fire this guy? have all their decent players transfer and then do the same song and dance for two more years. Maybe. I mean, that's how programs become Nebraska, but you know, uh, 
not good. Not good at all in Tallahassee. Uh, our other guy that we have in Tier 1 is Scott Frost. Uh, you know, like I said, credit where credit's due. They gave Oklahoma a hell of a battle, but, you know, you can only get so many props for losing close games. It's about time to start winning some close games, which he has not done. Tier 2, keep an eye out for him. Justin Fuente, we've kind of been flirting with the, the idea of him. Uh, Virginia Tech's coach this so far this season. They just lost to West Virginia. Virginia Tech got ranked. I think they were like 16 this, this past week, and they're just they're just not that good. People kind of overreacted to their UNC upset, and they have you know, now that they're getting into ACC play uh, week in and week out. I could see it going south for the Hokies. So we'll keep an eye on him. If they drop a couple more, then he'll he'll be promoted to tier one. And lastly, for this week, Coach O, now that LSU is done with their cupcake schedule, they're traveling to Starkville like we discussed, we're about to find out what they're made of, and I am thrilled to watch. So, good luck with that, Ordron. We'll see. Who's not back of the week? The state of Florida, with the Gators, Miami, Florida State, and UCF all losing. Of course, no shame in Florida's loss. I've been complimenting them uh, for how they battled back. Miami got steamrolled. Florida State lost to uh, Wake Forest. And not that UCF really deserves to be grouped with these other three schools, but if any of you saw the Friday night game, that was just one of the most ridiculous ball games I've ever seen in my life with UCF almost being handed the game on a platter with the field goal to win and then losing on a pick six as the game was coming to a close. In addition to that, their star quarterback, Gabriel, was hurt on the very last play of the game, which wasn't that pick six. It was when UCF had four or five whatever seconds left and just tried to do the lateral you know, 75-yard play to, to, to finish the game. And Dylan Gabriel got injured and will be out for the rest of the season, from what I understand. So I do I feel really bad for him. I was excited to watch him slinging around in Malzahn's offense, but that's a super tough break. But not a good week for the state of Florida. The non-ranked game of the week this upcoming Saturday is the 11 a.m. LSU at Mississippi State. That's mostly because I'm just interested to see how LSU does against another team that is, you know, halfway decent at least. Um, not, I mean, I think I might be being nicer to state than I really should. I think they're probably going to finish last in the SEC West, but still just with all the questions surrounding LSU after they got manhandled by UCLA – uh, and then played a couple cupcakes. You know, I'm just excited to see LSU kind of get more into the meat of their schedule so we can see what's going to happen with them and Coach O going forward. My best bet of the week, bear with me on this one, Utah minus 14 playing Washington State. Utah has been really disappointing, like one of the teams I was super high on going into the season, and they've dropped a couple bad games. I'm going to blame this on Charlie Brewer. Maybe he was just toxic and bad for the locker room. They dumped him. He dumped the program. (laughs) Now out on his own. And Cameron Rising, who was a Utah recruit, was supposed to play all last year, but got hurt the first game, came in and led them back from a 24-10 deficit against San Diego State to force overtime. They didn't win, but I'm counting on this being the spark that this Utah team needs to really get going. I'm a big fan of their coach, and I think that they are still... I mean, the two games that they've lost were to BYU and San Diego State. So they still control their own destiny in the Pac-12 South. Pac-12 play starts this week with Washington State coming to town. Uh, for a little context, Washington State... So I had in my... I went through and made all these preseason notes... Uh, getting ready for this season over the summer. And I had in my notes, Washington State, not very talented. Program's not in a good place. And they tend to just kind of roll over once they get punched in the mouth a time or two. This theory proved true last week when they played USC. So they got beat by a margin of 45 to 15. 
Um, although it was a close game at halftime, USC outscored them 38-0 to in the second half. Correction, that was a final score of 45-14. to And Washington State was actually winning 14-7 to at halftime before UCL... Or, oh my god, I'm doing it again. USC went on a 38-0 to second half run to beat them handily. So, I'm kind of counting on this same thing. Maybe it takes a quarter or so for Cameron Rising to get settled in there, but I think once Utah throws a couple haymakers, they should be able to pull away. So, Utah minus 14, lock it in. We are 3 and 1 so far on best bets this year. So, good going, y'all. Group of 5 game of the week. We're reaching here. There ain't much, <laughs> but we're going to go with Liberty, who is a six-point favorite traveling to Syracuse. Uh, that Syracuse team is one of the worst Power 5 programs, and of course, Liberty has the high-octane offense led by their fearless leader, Hugh Freeze, so that's a Friday night game, so if you're bored, might be an interesting one to throw on. Maybe it won't be interesting if Liberty just routes them, but... Not much in the group of five category this week. The Pac-12 after dark game of the week. Just a bunch of games with super heavy, heavy favorites other than Cal at Washington. Two of my big teams I was really excited for going into the season who both started off one and two. I will say Washington's one and two is a hell of a lot worse than Cal because Cal's lost to Nevada and TCU. Two really good, respectable teams. The Huskies are still seven and a half point favorites over the Golden Bears. I will be tapping that uh, Cal plus seven and a half because Washington hasn't shown us any reason to trust them at all this year. And I think Cal is a tough team that can, if they don't win, I think they'll at least hang around. They got there for us. Best bet week two, if you'll remember correctly. Uh, so Cal at Washington, that one starts at 830 Central. The tweet of the week, although it didn't age too well, I appreciate the trolling effort on behalf of Tulane. Their official Twitter account tweeted out, we did that, and it was a picture of their helmets for this week when they played Ole Miss. So for those of you who don't know, Tulane, way back in the day, used to be a member of the SEC. They left in 1964, and... They, on their helmets, they uh, listed all of their SEC championships, of which they've won three. And it's funny because Ole Miss has not won an SEC championship since Tulane left in 1964. So Tulane kind of had the throwbacks going and poking some fun at Ole Miss about how neither of them have won an SEC championship since Tulane left the conference in 1964. Our helmet sticker... (laughs) Speaking of helmet stickers, uh, actually goes to Matt Corral of Ole Miss. Speaking of Ole Miss against Tulane. So Tulane, yes, they had the funny helmet sti- the actual helmet sticker, but my make-believe helmet sticker for the week goes to Ole Miss's QB. Uh, they had a 61-21 to win over Tulane. I didn't see this game, but apparently Lane was just really pouring it on, going for it on fourth and one in Ole Miss's uh, in, or in two-lane territory, rather, instead of kicking field goals late in the game when it was way out of hand. So I don't know if he's trying to pump up the stats or get back at two-lane for their cute little helmet sticker gesture. But Macarral put up a ridiculous stat line, 21 of, or sorry, 23 of 31 for 335 passing yards and three touchdowns. He also rushed for 68 yards and four touchdowns. So this is an interesting side-by-side study because everyone's saying, oh, Ole Miss, they killed Tulane at home. And when Oklahoma played Tulane at home, they really struggled with them 40-35. to Uh, So this kind of shook up the Heisman race week one when Bryce Young overtook Rattler for the favorite in that game. To kind of compare this to Corral's stat line, Rattler had 304 pass yards, only one touchdown and two interceptions, and he had seven rushes for eight yards and one touchdown. So he had, uh, let's see, five fewer touchdowns than Corral did and two more interceptions against the same team. Ole Miss, it was never a game. They were always way out in front, and Oklahoma 
I mean, it ended as a one-score ball game. Speaking of the Heisman, Corral is now the betting favorite. This is according to VegasInsider.com at plus 210. He overtook Bryce Young, who is currently plus 250 and was the favorite for the last couple weeks after Rattler threw down the stinker against Tulane. Then there's a big drop-off after that. CJ Stroud being the third most likely to win at 16 to 1. So these odds have really gotten shaken up in a hurry. Uh, Corral leading the way, long way to go, but uh, that's pretty, pretty exciting for the Rebs and their incredible offense there under Kiffin. So now what I will be watching the best games in the morning, afternoon, and evening time slots. At 11 a.m. Central in the morning, I'm most excited for Notre Dame at Wisconsin because that really has the most national, you know, playoff implications between those two schools. Notre Dame undefeated barely. They've struggled basically every week so far. And Wisconsin dropped a stupid first game to Penn State. But if they were to win this one, then they could definitely get back on track and control their own destiny and well, I guess not control their own destiny in the Big Ten, but in the Big Ten, in their their division, they would be fine. So um, that will be a decent game in the morning, probably a slugfest. I'm also excited about, I'll be watching the LSU and State game at the same time. So we'll have two screens going for that at 2.30, Texas A&M versus Arkansas. And with the nightcap, I've got West Virginia at Ole Miss, which could, you know, be pretty entertaining. Uh, Unless Tennessee ends up having a close one with Florida, we'll be keeping an eye on that one as well. Last but not least, our game day grub segment. So last week I did the seven and a half pound cut of pulled pork. Didn't go very well. I don't know if it was my grill that was reading the wrong temperatures or if it was my meat thermometer. I'm thinking it was the latter that wasn't giving me good readings. So it ended up being too tough, still edible. I'm still eating some, uh, even tonight, but not the nice tender juicy pull off the bone. Like I had cooked it the first time. So that was a bit disappointing, but not the end of the world. We'll get them next time. This upcoming week, uh, game day grub is a grilled zucchini squash spear recipe where you, uh, Get a zucchini, cut it up into little spears, and then put everything in a Ziploc bag with some olive oil, sherry vinegar, salt and pepper, and thyme. Shake it up, let it soak in for a few minutes, and then throw it on the grill. It's actually a delicious treat. I did not, I've never been a big zucchini guy. Not that I dislike it, I just never really buy it. Uh, But this was a really, really quick and easy healthy appetizer, good to lay out when you have people over. So I'll post that recipe. I do it on the grill, but it would also be perfectly fine in the oven, which goes for most, unless it's something like the barbecue from last weekend, where it's clearly something that's going to be smoking on the grill for eight hours. Most of these recipes, like I've said before, you can do it in the oven or get creative and find a different way to replicate it. But I'll post the recipe on the thread uh, best bet of the week, lock in Utah minus 14. Let's move on to four and one on the year. And that's about all I got. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. Next week, we've got another very special guest that you will see coming on your feed probably a day later. I think we're going to do it record on Wednesday night next week because we're going to do a lot of prepping and week the week five slate is huge. So not to already start talking about that. But we're going to probably take an extra night to do some more research and prepare for all of those big games. And, uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. So thanks, everybody. Follow all the social medias. Share it with your friends, blah, blah, blah. Thanks for listening to Homestoke Party. Bye.